Well, thank you. Um, thank you all very much for being here today. And uh, we're going to continue our study in the songs of Christmas, these canticles or hymns that were sung uh, by various people in the Gospel of Luke that were announcing and declaring the coming of our Savior Jesus and the new world that would be ushered in by our great King. And so if you can, turn to Luke chapter uh, 1, and we're going to read the canticle or the song of uh, Zechariah, who was the father uh, of John the Baptist and uh, had this uh, amazing vision of an angel telling him that John would be born. John, of course, uh, was born to his father and mother who were quite elderly. And so it was something of a miraculous birth. Uh, And because Zechariah refused to believe the angel, the angel struck him dumb. He couldn't speak. Uh, for the entire time of uh, his wife's pregnancy. But when the baby was born, the baby John, his mouth uh, was opened, his tongue was loosed, and John uh, either chanted or sung or recited. Uh, I think it was probably a, a more of a, a chant. Uh, that's my own opinion. Uh, this uh, song that is called the Benedictus, which is uh, the first line in Latin of the song, Uh, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And he is praising the coming of the Messiah and the part uh, that his son will play. It's very interesting. He's singing not only to God, but he's also prophesying uh, the part that his son will play in the uh, redemption of mankind. Uh, Like the Magnificat, uh, this story is has high theology in it. It's almost uh, we could spend literally spend weeks and months in this just this song, looking at all the deep theology that is there. It's filled with Old Testament passages that have to do with re- redemption, uh, with salvation, with deliverance from their enemies. And if you listen very carefully to these songs, you will see that these people, when they were singing, Mary and Zechariah, even the angels. And uh, later on, uh, uh, Simeon in the Nunc Dimittis, uh, their focus was very earthly. It was not what we see in our contemporary, modern, Western Christianity, particularly here in America, where we think of salvation only in terms of being saved and going to heaven. Uh, These people, their idea of heaven and the afterlife was not completely formed yet like we enjoy today having this idea of going and being in heaven. They were very concerned with earth, with being delivered from enemies and from death and darkness. And imagine, I know it's hard, but imagine that you were a Christian living in the Middle East today, in Aleppo, Syria, or somewhere else. There's not many left. They're either killed or having to run for their lives. But imagine you were under that kind of of oppression, you would not just be praying to go to heaven. Of course, that's desirable, of course. But you would be asking, God, save my children. Save my family. Bring us to a place of safety. Stop the evildoers from their oppression. You would be very earthly minded. And of course, when you live in in such a, a, a place like America where the land is flowing with milk and honey, you know, I mean, how much better can it get? I mean, this is almost heaven here. Right? Almost heaven on earth. So it's hard for us to imagine anything better than living in the United States of America. I mean, we have Disney World. 
And you think about these things. I mean, look, we can go do things. We can buy. We eat. We all are on a diet because we eat too much. Right? We're not lacking in anything. So it's very hard to get our heads around some of these things. But I want to encourage you. Try to think what it would be like if you were under this kind of pressure and this kind of oppression. You would be looking for the kind of salvation uh, that's perhaps different than what we think about. John and Jesus, listen to this, and then we'll read our text. John and Jesus were both, uh, begin their ministry, both of them in the wilderness. Both of them begin their ministry in the wilderness. Both are rejected and executed, both John and Jesus. But unlike John, listen, Jesus enters another wilderness of rejection. In Gethsemane, in his betrayal, in the desertion by his friends, in a mock trial, in the horrific and brutal crucifixion on the cross, and the cold, dark grave, Jesus conquers death, hell, and the grave emerging from that wilderness, victorious. And then He carries John and all of us with Him into the new creation, new life, a new city, into a new world that partially will be lived in heaven, but the rest of the eternity will be lived on earth, a redeemed creation, here and now. This song is in two stanzas, and so let's read them together. Uh, I'll read and be looking for uh, the stanzas. He's going to read the first section uh, that we'll read will be about Jesus the Messiah. The second section will be about John, his son. Now hear God's word. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness righteousness before him all our days and you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our god whereby the sun shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. This canticle or poem or song or chant, however you want to think about it, uh, was sung by the father in the presence of many people at the birth uh, of his child. It's broken down in two stanzas, as I told you. And and the way we're going to look at this, uh, let me give you a brief outline here. We're going to talk about what the Lord has done. Zechariah explains to us what the Lord has done and why. What He's done and why. And He does this in the first part, talking about the Messiah. What the Lord has done and why. And then in the third 
uh, part that we're going to look at is how he did it. And this is going to come from what he says about his son. I think you're going to find this fascinating. He says what the Lord does and, and why in, the, in his stanzas of song singing about the Messiah, but he tells us how in the ministry of his son. So let's look at it together. What has the Lord done? Verses 68 and 69, you can see them in your, in your, uh, your printout or if you have your Bible open. He visited, he redeemed, and he raised up a horn of salvation. He visited, redeemed, and raised up a horn of salvation. What does this mean? Well, visit is very easy to understand. It's somebody coming to visit. When I was a, a child, I spent a lot of time uh, living at my grandparents' house. And there in my grandparents' house, uh, every year, the priest from our, uh, our church would come to uh, bless their house and uh, to collect their yearly pledge for membership. So the priest would be glad that it's not me showing up at your house to collect a but he would come, and he was a sweet man, Father Husson, I'll never forget. He would come to the house, and my grandfather would put on a clean shirt, uh, hopefully one that didn't have any holes in it, and would get all ready to go. And my grandmother would make a pot of coffee and get out some things to eat uh, in very Middle Eastern fashion. And uh, in would come Father Husson, and he very dignified older gentleman, uh, about my age uh, now, God help me. And... Uh, and he would uh, speak to them, and hi, how are you? And he would bless, and then he would get out his little scepter. He had a little gold or brass scepter, and it had water, and he would go around the house, and in Arabic, he would throw the water and the walls and the curtains and, you know, and the paint and everywhere, and the water's going everywhere, and he's blessing the house. It was beautiful. Uh, and that's what a blessing was. That's what visitation meant in Scripture. And there are dozen, a dozen or more Scriptures where the Bible says He came and visited His people. Visitation could be He visited to bless them, like Father Husson did in our house. He would come to visit to bless. But there are also places in the Old Testament where He came to visit in order to judge. And then there are, there are a few places where the visitation actually meant both things both judgment and salvation. And you hear uh, Peter talking about this. We'll look at it next year in 1 Peter chapter 2, where he says that Jesus' second coming, not His first advent uh, per se, but His second coming, He will come to judge and to bless. He will judge the world in righteousness and He will bless uh, His people with salvation. Uh, that's what visiting means. What is redeemed? Redeemed is what we've talked about it, week by week. I've been bringing up this idea of redemption. Redemption was to be uh, enslaved and to be bought or purchased back. In the ancient Near East, slavery was not like the kind of slavery practiced in, this, in the antebellum South where they would steal men from Africa or other countries and sell them on an auction block and they would belong to that person forever till they died, and all their offspring would belong to that person till they died, and they would never be paid any wages, and they were just literally enslaved for all their lives. In the ancient Near East, there was that kind of slavery, but in Israel, it was illegal. That kind of slavery was absolutely forbidden in the Old Testament. What you did have was bond service. In other words, if you got in debt or you got in trouble, you could sell yourself to uh, an owner and he would pay you reasonable wages and you would work off your debt 
by working for this person. And if you were able to scrape together, if you were a good Dave Ramsey uh, student and you were able to scrape together a few little extra pennies over here on the side, you could actually buy yourself out of debt. It was called manumission. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Well, in the Old Testament, people actually were able to buy themselves out of slavery. It was rare because it's very hard to do. But people could and sometimes did. When the New Testament, when Paul and the other New Testament writers about, speak about being redeemed, they use a very interesting form of the verb that is passive in its, in its voice and is saying to us that we don't redeem ourselves, but someone else comes and redeems us. He pays the price. And if you believe what Jonathan Edwards says, Jesus Christ was both buyer and the price. He was both the high priest that made the sacrifice and he himself, like Aslan in the, in the Chronicles of Narnia, he himself climbed up on the block to die for his people. If you believe what the word redemption means. I do. I think that's exactly what Paul and the other New Testament writers were doing when they were saying that. And the Old Testament says the same thing. Israel... Hope in the Lord. These are from the Psalms and from Isaiah. Hope in the Lord, for the Lord is steadfast in His love, plentiful, plentiful in His redemption. The, The people of Israel were enslaved time after time after time, and over and over again, God came and redeemed them. And you know, He redeemed them ultimately in His Son Jesus, and with them, us, the Gentile nations, all of us, To create one new humanity, one new group of people. Not black and white, yellow, brown, not poor and rich, not educated and uneducated. Not all the the divisions that we artificially impose on our poor world. But instead, He redeems all of mankind and brings together all those people, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, into His presence so that we can worship Him in our own way, our own languages. We're not all going to speak Hebrew in heaven. You and I are going to be singing in, in uh, uh, English or in Spanish or perhaps some other language. We're all gonna, it's going to be a cacophony of languages and voices praising God. And the Presbyterians are all going to be standing there going like this. And the Charismatics are going to be screaming and yelling up and down. And, you know, the Episcopalians are going to be drinking. I'm kidding. It's going to be a great vision of people from every tribe tongue worshiping God in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. That's what it means to be redeemed. The horn of salvation, you know, my brother uh, David lives out in the Upper Valley and we go out there and have Thanksgiving recently and we're driving, we turn on the road that goes into his subdivision and there on the corner is this huge pasture and in the pasture, you know, those longhorn, are they Texas longhorns? They look like Texas longhorns, I mean, huge cattle, gigantic with horns that go clear, I mean, they're gigantic. And they look, they're probably gentle as lambs, I'm sure the people go out there and pet them and give them food and they're fine. But I mean, they're scary looking. They're giants with huge horns. But you know, you could take a saw and cut the horn off and throw it on the ground. Yeah, that's no big deal. What is it about a horn? It's not so much the horn. The horn is an expression, but it's the beast that is 
that is behind the strength of the horn. And that's what this image, a horn was the strength, the power, the might of the great king or the great judge, whoever it was that was going to come and rescue his people. His strength was seen in his bodily image, in his power, his might, his great horns. The steam that came blowing out of his nose, his nostrils, his muscles quivering, his eyes flashing with flames of fire. That's what they imaged when they thought of a horn of salvation. And so Zechariah sings this beautiful song of victory and joy. It's actually, if you, if you read the commentators, the commentators say this is not uh, a, a song that you sing by a choir. These are war chants. These are, these are the elves showing up in Tolkien's book, Lord of the Rings, and beating their swords and, and their shields and saying, we're going to fight. This is uh, Mel Gibson, Braveheart, you know, opposing the English. This is the great armies coming and, and, and challenging the enemy. That's what these songs are all about. They're beautiful, but they're chants of battle and war. We are not going to go down... Uh, easily we're going to fight our great God is going to come with a horn like a bull and he's going to rush in and crush his enemies and destroy them and this is the image that Zechariah is painting in his song of course everyone is surprised when the true king does show up because he doesn't come on a war horse he comes meek and lowly riding on a donkey and the colt the foal of a donkey. And everybody's thrown upside down by his appearance. But why? Listen, that's what he did. He sends this great salvation, this mighty figure who will rescue and redeem them. Why? Look at verse 71 and 72 and 73 and up through 75. Look at these verses. He saved us from our enemies. Now think. Think what they're thinking. Put yourself in their shoes. The enemies were all around them. We live in relative safety in our country. It's hard for us to get our head around it. But think for a moment, what if just outside the door there were people literally that wanted to kill you? This is what they were looking at. They were, they were surrounded. They were an occupied nation. Like many countries in the world today are occupied by, by foreign forces. They were an occupied army living in their land who was curtailing their freedom and holding them back from worshiping God completely freely. They had some liberty, but in other ways they were not completely free. And he says he has saved us from our enemies, from all those who hate us. His, his imagery there, folks, listen, is very earthly. He's not talking about going to heaven. He's talking about living here in this world, in safety, being delivered from real enemies. And let me say this as gently as I can say it. Muslims are not our enemies. Lesbian and gay people are not our enemies. Democrats are not our enemies. Now they can be, but what the Scripture says is, be, and you know who, who often were the, were the most strident enemies of our Lord Jesus and John? Were church people. Religious people. They were the ones that got so outraged at Him. The prostitutes, they welcomed Him. The wine-bibbers and the, the publicans, the tax collectors, they all welcomed Him. 
They were glad to hear His voice. But the religious hated His voice. And while these people that I mentioned may in fact turn into enemies, what's behind it, the Apostle Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness in this world. You see, there are forces at work in this world that go beyond what we can see. And if you don't believe that, you're just not thinking biblically. The Bible demands that we think biblically. It doesn't mean that you excuse people that blow up uh, towers and that kill people randomly or that, that make political messes of our world. That is not what I'm saying. Please hear me. But what I am saying is that we are supposed to have double vision. We're supposed to be able to look at the forces that are arrayed against us, these, these principalities, these powers, these rulers of the darkness who are inflicting wrong thinking, wrong heart, wrong beliefs, into the world, and then they're acting on them. And we, unfortunately, very often respond in kind. We do exactly what Jesus said not to do. We do not bless our enemies. We curse our enemies. We do not bless those who despitefully use us. We curse them to the ground. And if you don't believe that, you haven't lived in the church very long. The church is a battlefield. People shred one another in church. Do you know that? They literally do. And so for months now, I've been calling on you. I want our church to be different, a different kind of people. People that sacrificially love and that give. This is what it means to be saved from our enemies. To be able to look, yes, we have a new Secretary of Defense, General Mathis, who is, who's not going to take any nonsense from any enemy. That's great. That's wonderful. But for Christians, we have to be able to both defend ourselves in our homes in righteousness and at the same time be willing to die and sacrifice for enemies. Can you do that? That's hard. Yes? Isn't it? It's only hard for me. No, of course not. We have to have double vision as Christians. It doesn't make us weak, folks. Listen, the Christian church conquered Rome the greatest power that ever existed through gentle love and persistence, loving their enemies, they conquered the greatest nation in the world. And there's a picture every Christmas, I've told you this before, in the New York uh, Metropolitan Museum. They roll it out every Christmas. And it's a beautiful nativity painting of a nativity scene, the typical scene, Mary, Joseph, the smiling cows, uh, the singing uh, sheep, you know, the, the shepherd with his little drum and the flutes. And, you know, everybody's happy in that scene. And they're all there and they're all happy and it's so serene and so beautiful. But behind in the distance, you can see the crumbled, broken down remains of the city of Rome. Some artist brilliantly conceived this painting. In the forefront, the baby in a manger of straw born in poverty, born in weakness, born to a virgin, born in a scandalous way. And behind it, the greatest empire that the world had ever known in shambles and burning. Jesus Christ is the great King who saves us from our enemies in this life, in this way. It's not just heaven, not just pie in the sky, by and by, it's for now. And we can't hate our enemies, we have to love them 
and see what's going on behind. Why that's going on? And then give them the answers necessary. That's another thing. He says in 72, to show mercy, promise. You see, God uh, is honoring His covenant. Why, is he, why did He do what He did? To save us from our enemies, but also to honor. You know, every one of us, has been betrayed. I, I won't ask, uh, but I, you know, if, if you just think about it for, for one second here, don't raise your hand. Don't call out somebody's name. But think about who, who has not been betrayed. Even if you're a young person, even if you're a young kid, some friend at school has probably turned on you at some time. Everyone has experienced betrayal or disappointment over something. Do you realize that the only person, as I look back over my life, and I think of all of my relationships and all of the things that have happened to me. The only one that has never wavered, never one, not one degree, has been my Savior. He has stuck with me through everything. In my darkest, dark, when I was in the gutter, He was there. And when I was flying high, you know, when I'm, the, when I'm doing the greatest things in the world, which I do a lot of, you all don't know that I leap tall buildings in a single bound. No, I mean, you know, when you're doing all the great things, getting up early in the morning and praying and reading your Bible and crafting magnificent sermons that all the world wants to hear. He's there too. He never leaves us, never forsakes. He is the one faithful, the one constant. What the writer of Hebrews said is the anchor to your soul. Isn't that what we all long for? In our broken lives, our broken relationships, our broken country, our broken world, our broken whatever. Isn't that the one thing? And do you know if you hook your, your anchor to that uh, solid rock, that as the, as the winds and the waves of life blow us hither, thither, and yon, that you can then become the anchor for someone else who's maybe not tethered as tightly, that you can actually rescue someone else. This is what He has come to do because God is faithful. He, he, he's doing this. Why is He doing it? Because He wants to show you and me His faithfulness like He did to Israel. To deliver us from our enemies so that we can serve Him. Listen, look at 74 and 75. To serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness. I have told you folks, it, it, the time is over for Christians to be hand-wringing their hands. Oh my gosh. Or now, no Christians are wringing their hands. They're all jumping up and down rejoicing because now we've got Republican President, Republican Congress, Republican Republic. Because we're saved, right? Thank God we're saved now. Well, if you believe that, you're not reading your Bible, folks. You don't have to listen to me. People don't save us. They'll disappoint you. And if they haven't already, they will. I'm sorry to bring bad news, but, you know, Jeremiah and I are buddies. Jeremiah was a bad news guy, and I'm... Politicians disappoint. Our husbands and wives disappoint. Our children disappoint we disappoint our children. Here is the one constant in our lives. Here is the one who is delivering us so that we can serve others in holiness and righteousness. You know, there are these guys in Aleppo, Syria called the White Helmets. Have you all heard of these uh, guys that are they're untrained, but they're going into these buildings and saving? They've saved 150,000 people. 
I think just in the past three years. And they got a, did they get a Nobel Prize or something for this? The White Helmets of Aleppo. And we watched a documentary. Very interesting. These guys are untrained. They're like firemen. They run into burning buildings. They run into buildings that are crumbling. And they go and they rescue people. Many of them have lost their lives. They're totally fearless. But they have a sense of mission to serve and to save those who are in those crumbling buildings. And if God, God, please give us, the Christians in America, and especially our little church, give us the courage to run into the broken down buildings of somebody else's life, somebody that's messed up. Like, like if somebody had not stepped into my life and pulled me out of the gutter, folks, I wouldn't be here to bless all of you like I am now. I mean, think about your life. Didn't somebody go down into the depths to get you? And if you can't think of a human being, uh, somebody in this world, think about Jesus. Didn't He come down into the, into the bottom to get you? Doesn't He go... Listen, doesn't He go all the way to the bottom? You know, in AA, we talk about being broken over our sins. You know, we talk about brokenness, brokenness. Nobody got broken like Jesus. No one. No one went to the bottom like Him. So that whenever you go to the bottom, you'll find Him. It's Him you find when you're broken. It's Him you find when you're, when you're least expecting it. It's Him you find in your greatest weakness. Not on the mountaintops, folks, but down in the valleys. That's where you find our Savior. That's what He was born. That's what the whole story of the manger is all about. That's what it's all about. It's all about God coming to earth. Not us climbing and scratching our way by our effort and our good moral doing to get to Him. It's by Him condescending and coming down and rescuing us so that like the prostitute, like the tax collector, like Zacchaeus who was up in the olive tree and he comes down and he says, today salvation is in my house. I'm going to give half of everything I own. You wonder, wow, how could he give just half? My question is, how come we don't give half? I know why I don't. I'm stingy. And I'm scared that if I give half, I won't have enough. But think about it. If you were really literally picked up out of the garbage and, and clothed in beautiful raiment and, and the God of the universe, the King of the ages, stood you up and said, I love you. My life for yours. Would you not then do anything for Him? Would any claim that He asked of you, would you not be ready to give it to Him? I tell you folks, we don't believe the Gospel. We just don't. And I'm imploring all of us, me too, that we would start this new year that's coming believing the gospel. God said, me for you, the only religion in the world that says me for you. And let's give him all that we have. Everything. He doesn't want 10%. He wants 100%. He wants it all. How you do that, that's up to you. But He wants everything. He wants you all in, all in, once and forever. So that's why, that's what He's done, that's why He's done it. Let's look at how, and I'll do this quickly. How He's done it. This is the next stanza where He's singing about His Son. The role His Son, John. And Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest man that ever lived up until that point, Himself accepted. Can you imagine? He is the greatest human being that has ever lived up until this time. Jesus said that himself. 
And then he told his followers, he said, but the least of you, see if you can get your head around this, the least of you is greater than him. The least of you is greater than him. Amazing. Can't go into it right now. How is he going to do it? Look at what he says in verse 76. You child, now he's talking to John, you will be called a prophet of the Most High and you will go to prepare his ways. This is uh, uh, John's role was to get the way ready for the king. You see in the old ancient Near East uh, and other parts of the world as well, when a sovereign was going to visit, they would get crews of slaves and people and they would make sure that the road to their particular home, wherever it was, or their, their kingdom, was paved and ready to go. They would clean the roads up, make sure they were smooth and all the rocks taken out, potholes filled in. They do the same thing today. If uh, President Obama gets on Air Force One and he flies to, uh, uh, to Cincinnati, Ohio, you can be certain that the Secret Service had been there months before or weeks, whatever it takes, they would have had dog sniffing, uh, bomb sniffing dogs, and they would have had uh, electronic devices, they would have scoured the route to and from, they would have made sure there were no impediments in the road, so that the the limousine doesn't even have to slow down or hit a bump, that it's going to go just at the right speed, in the right direction, and that nothing's going to impede them. It happened then, it happens now. The, The forerunner, John was Jesus' forerunner. John was to go and prepare people. This was how, what he was going to do and why he was going to do it would be coming to us through this man, John, who would prepare the way. How did he prepare the way? Very quickly. First of all, in verse 77, he talks about preparing the way and he prepares us to face, listen, our greatest need. What is your greatest need? Ask yourself. Is it more money? Is it a different spouse? Don't don't answer that. You know, is it more obedient children or children that listen? I don't know. What what is it that you have? A better job? You know, to stop an addiction? uh, To to, to do this? You could list any number of things. What is your greatest need? And I would say, folks, our greatest need, listen, please hear me. You're not going to hear this in most churches. Your greatest need is to face, honestly, look your sin right in the eye, look at it and own it. And then repent and believe the gospel. That is our greatest need in this country today. Sin, folks, is not just making a mistake. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. It is an affront to God when we sin. There's no soft peddling it. There's no easy way around it. When we sin, we are scorning the God of heaven and earth. And if you don't face it, if you don't look your sin dead in the eye and call it what it is, as Steve Brown used to tell us, you've got to take the demon, kiss him on the lips. You can't hold him off and you've got to shake hands. You've got to get in tight, get in close, and admit what is going on in your life. And then, repent and believe the gospel. Murray McShane said, for every look you take at your sin, take ten looks at Jesus. So you don't sit there and dwell on it and hate yourself and self-hatred and self-scorning and all of that other junk. You don't do that, but you do turn to, you do face it and you do turn to Jesus, your Savior. And John came to prepare. There's 
prepare the way for that. When, the, when people came to him for salvation, when they came to John, begging him to help them repent, do you know what he said to them? You brood of vipers. You snakes. Do you think you're going to come here and get salvation? I tell you, the rod is la- the, the, the axe is laid to the tree and God is... He didn't welcome them and say, oh, please come down here and we, we'd love for, to have you today. It was not an altar call. He was hard on them. He says, How, you think you're going to get saved? You better bring forth some fruits of that repentance that you claim. Let's see something. This was a hardcore uh, guy. And folks, in our country, in America today, sins are just, you know, mistakes. I'm so sorry we made a big mistake. Admit what it is. Don't run away from it. The closer you get to your sin, listen, the sooner you'll find Jesus. Yes? Thank you, Gail. There's one believer here today. Thanks, Gail. You and I will have coffee later and we'll talk about all the rest of them. The closer you get to Jesus, the sooner you're going to find your sin. The closer you get to your sin, the sooner you're going to find Jesus. Both are true. Go to your Savior and you'll find what's wrong. Face your sin and you'll find your Savior because He went to the cross for you for that sin. Play around with religion and run away and hide over here and do this and that and the other thing. You'll never find Him. You'll be as lost as a Pharisee. Run to Jesus. Run to Him. He prepares us by facing our sins. He prepares us to embrace our only hope. Let's, the tender mercy of God. Verse 78. What is the tender mercy of God? That I told you this weeks ago. It's sympathy. It's compassion. It's having yourself moved. Your heart moved towards that peace. Feeling sorry for them. Sympathy is feeling sorry for them. But God goes one step further. And that's the story of Christmas, folks. He not only sympathizes with our weakness, He empathizes with our weakness. He actually comes down. He actually enters into our human existence in a manger. And the the cows were not lowing and the sheep were not blowing and doing all this other stuff that's real sweet and sentimental. It was ugly and dirty and poor and uncomfortable and horrifically scandalous, this young teenage girl with no husband, pregnant, a child who they, who they called what, he, what they thought he was uh, all his life. Think of it. Not a pretty sight, but if you see it for what it really is, it's the most beautiful sight in the world because nowhere that you can go or I can go can escape that beauty. One old hymn says, the lower you lay me, the higher you'll raise me. Doesn't that encourage you? That there's nothing in this world that can take us down. When we get to the very bottom, we find Him in a manger, clothed in flesh, for us, as us. Sympathy, yes. Empathy, oh yes. He came. He who knew no sin came to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Couldn't have done it without the tender mercy of our God. And finally, so that we can worship the Lord our King who brings the sunrise. It says the sunrise shall visit us from on high. The light 
in our darkness, the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. How in the world does he do that? I'll tell you. It's very simple, folks. You, you, if you think about it one minute, you'll know. On the cross, that's where he does it. That's where the sun refused to shine at the middle of the day. No sunshine for Jesus Christ. No mercy for Jesus. The only human being in this world that never received an ounce of mercy was Jesus. No compassion for Him. He died at the hands of His enemies on a cruel cross, forsaken, abandoned by His closest friends, His followers, betrayed. He bore in His body, Peter says, on the tree, our sins so that we could be free to live in the sunshine, in the glory of God. That you could be free, listen, to love your enemies, to put up with a terrible spouse. When your children go off the rails, to have hope, to be able to cling to an anchor for your soul, even when the worst things, when all the money is gone. Somebody that became poor, Paul said, though he was rich, For your sakes He became poor, that you in Him might be rich. And crazy us in America, we think He's talking about money. Nuts. We think it's an iPhone, a new iPhone 7. That's not what He's talking about. So that nothing can ever touch you, nothing can ever take you out of your shepherd's hand. That's how He does it. On the cross we receive mercy, Death, death passes us over. We just get hit by its shadow. We don't even get touched by it. And the sunrise of Easter morning dispels the darkness of Christmas Day and the manger. The two come together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness and your mercy and your glory and your goodness that endures forever. Thank you for feeding us by your Son's body and blood and for making us new. I pray, Holy Father, Uh, that you will create in this uh, small band of brothers and sisters here at Christ the King a vision for a reality of the kingdom of God that uh, is staggering and beautiful. Uh, That people will look and see that our our church is different, uh, not because we're better, but in fact because we know that we're not. I ask, Holy Jesus, please, by the power of your incarnation and your cross and your resurrection, Renew us in our hearts by faith, O Lord, that we might stand with you and prepare your way. Help us, save us, have mercy on us, O God, and keep us by your grace. Amen.